Uh, we're going to be in the second half of Acts 25 and cover all of Acts 26. This is going to be our second biggest chunk of scripture throughout the entire series in Acts. Uh, and, and we're going to hopefully cover it fairly succinctly. So I'm not going to read through the entire thing. It's just way too much. Uh, but you can track with us with the sermon handouts and, and just by opening your Bible or Bible app. We, I, I want to give you a little bit of an intro here because it's such a big chunk of scripture. But Jesus, both in his ministry that we see in the book of Luke and in the other gospels, he made certain predictions about his followers. And even in the book of Acts, when he, when he uh, appeared to Paul several different times, he made certain predictions about what Paul would experience for the name of Christ. And uh, in fulfillment of Jesus's predictions, we've already seen Paul standing before the Jewish council, which was the Sanhedrin. It was a mixture of uh, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the scribes, and uh, he stood before them. He stood before two Roman governors. We looked at them, both Felix and uh, Festus, Festus uh, succeeding Felix as governor of this area of Judea. And, And with that position came this guy, Paul, who had been in prison for two years under Felix, and now Festus has him. So we, we looked at how Festus uh, interacted with him. And then in today's passage, Paul's going to stand before the Jewish king Agrippa II, uh, before he heads to Rome in final fulfillment of what Jesus said he would do. Jesus said, I'm, uh, you preached, uh, you were a witness in Jerusalem, now I'm going to send you to Rome. And he actually gets to share the gospel with some within even Caesar's household. And we're going to look at that starting next week. We only have two chapters left after this week. So we're going to finish this off next month uh, in the next couple weeks. But uh, King Agrippa II, he's the great grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that wanted to eliminate the Jewish king that was being born uh, in Bethlehem. And he had all the kids uh, up to the age of two put to death, trying to get rid of the Messiah who would be born in the town of David in Bethlehem. So this is his great-grandson, Agrippa II, who we're going to see in today's passage, okay? I want to start off by saying, and hopefully this is obvious, Paul was an interesting person with a very interesting story. You cannot read Paul's writings and read about Paul in the book of Acts and not understand that he was a very interesting character. But what really made Paul stand out and this is sometimes lost on us because we, we put Paul in the category of superhero Christian or something like this, like some first-tier Christian, and we're all just second-tier Christians. But what made Paul stand out was the fact that his life focus was to tell other people about Jesus Christ, the most interesting person who ever walked on this earth. And so in so doing, he became interesting himself. He stood out. And guys, you've heard this term before, but we live in what people are calling a post-Christian culture in America. And in our so-called post-Christian American culture, I think we as Christians can tend to forget just how interesting Jesus Christ is. We tend to think, well, we heard these stories. We're so used to hearing about Jesus. We're so used to hearing about his teachings and what he claimed about himself, about his person and work and fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. And it becomes sort of like, I don't know, bland. It loses its interest to us. We, we forget how fascinating Jesus Christ is in terms of what he said, which stands at the core of our Christian faith. His claims about his personal work are the core of Christianity. And our calling as Christians is to become more like Jesus, to become increasingly Christ-like. And as that happens, we will inevitably become more interesting to others 
Why? Because we take up an interesting hobby? No. It's because we will increasingly respond to people and situations and circumstances in surprising and unanticipated ways, just like Jesus did. You know, when you read in the Gospels about the life and ministry of Christ, you go, man, did you see how he responded to that question from the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Did you see how he cut right in between that trap that they laid for him? Guys, that's exactly what we become like when we become more like Christ. We become interesting, fascinating people. Again, not because our own uh, uh, interesting things we've done and adventures we've gone on and jokes we tell, but because we're becoming more like the most interesting person that ever lived, the Son of God made man, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have been given the privilege, uh, listen to this, the privilege of living a curiously Christian life. We should look odd. We should be interesting to the outside world because they shouldn't be able to anticipate based on worldly ways of thinking and worldly worldviews. They shouldn't be able to anticipate how we're going to respond or how we're going to react. It should look different. It should be curiously Christ-like and telling others about the most interesting story imaginable. You know what resonates with us in movies and books and everything else? All these amazing themes of of heroes sacrificing themselves to save others and all the... Do you know all of these themes find their basis, their richness, their context in the greatest story ever told, as it's been called, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is the most interesting story imaginable, and sometimes we forget that. Today's big idea is that sharing Christ is about being intentional with the interest of others. Being intentional with the interest expressed by others. So today's passage begins with several people, two in particular, the governor and the king, who are curious about this Christian man, Paul, who is speaking of a risen Christ, a risen Messiah. But the most important part of our passage actually reveals how that Christian man, Paul, responds to their interest, to their curiosity. How? By intentionally speaking the truth about Jesus and telling of how Jesus Christ changed his life forevermore. His personal testimony. So first, sharing Christ usually begins with interested people. Now sometimes we're trying to answer questions that people aren't asking. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us living in such a way and trusting that the Holy Spirit is working in people's hearts and minds and lives in such a way that it, they will express interest. So sharing Christ usually begins with people expressing interest in what we believe and how we live. And some people couldn't care less about the claims of Christ. I get that. I'm not saying everybody across the board is universally and unanimously going to be interested in, in our faith uh, or in the claims of Christ. But others, some people will be drawn in by God to ask questions about Christ and Christianity. They will hear something about our beliefs, they will see something about the way we live our lives, and they will be interested, curious. And this is how our passage begins in Acts 25, the last half, verses 13 through 27. It says, Festus, that's the Roman governor that replaced Felix, Festus did not know what to think about Paul. He, he sort of in, inherited this Paul problem from Felix, who, for political reasons, didn't want to release Paul, but also didn't want to convict him on certain charges. And so he, he, he ends up with this Paul problem, and he's curious. He wants to find out 
why Paul was in the situation he was. Now, Festus did not think that Paul had done anything worthy of death. Just like in the ministry of Christ, over and over again, these leaders, both Roman uh, uh, governors and kings, are saying over and over again, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. We don't see anything wrong with him. And so again, Festus doesn't think Paul has is, is done anything worthy of death, or really even imprisonment. We'll find out at the end of our passage. But now that Paul had used that Roman citizenship that God had blessed him with to appeal his case to Caesar in Rome, now the governor has to come up with some charges against him. The governor can't wipe that away. Once he appeals to Rome, the governor has to send him, but the governor has to send him with some sort of charges, some sort of accusations that make sense, right? So in verse 19, Festus sums up his understanding of Paul's situation and he, he basically says that, that the Jewish leadership, as he's expressing this to King Agrippa II, he says the Jewish leadership, that's the Sanhedrin, simply had some points of disagreement with Paul about their own religion, that is Judaism, and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's how Festus, the Roman governor, sort of sums up Paul and why he's in this situation. In other words, this wasn't a Roman concern. This was a Jewish concern. This was a Jewish matter. And so he, as a Roman governor, really wasn't in a place to, to uh, this wasn't his jurisdiction, so to speak. And this is where King Agrippa comes in. So King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, like I said, he's a great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, they were visiting Festus, the, the new governor who'd replaced Felix, and so the governor asks Agrippa to consult on Paul's curious case. Now, he's not saying, hey, I'm an ignoramus. I have no idea what to do with this guy. But he's saying, okay, Agrippa II's here. I'm going to lean on his knowledge of Judaism, of the Jewish culture and Jewish beliefs and practices to help me ascertain what charges to bring up against this man. And Agrippa was partly Jewish, and he was knowledgeable about Jewish culture and beliefs, so he ends up being the perfect person to provide some insight into this interesting case of Paul. And when Festus invites Agrippa to consider Paul's case, the king expresses his own eagerness to hear from Paul. Remember, this was the same thing we saw with um, uh, Herod Antipas, who was the uh, king uh, in Jesus' suffering and death at the end of Jesus' ministry. Remember, he went before a Herod, Herod uh, Antipas. And, and remember, Herod was really interested to see him. He's like, I've been wanting to meet you, Jesus. And he wanted to kind of pepper him with questions and find out what he was all about. And Jesus just played silent, right? Because he had nothing to say to, to that Herod. But now Paul unloads on this Herod, and he shares a, a, a whole bunch that we're going to look at as the passage goes forward. But he, too, is interested in Paul. You've got all these leaders in the area interested in this man, and so there's a right way and a wrong way to draw people's interest. When you hear me say we as Christians should, should interest people in the, what we say we believe and what we uh, act in accordance with our beliefs, how we act in accordance with our beliefs, but there's two ways. The wrong way is to live a life that is an absolute dumpster fire. All right, you don't want to raise people's interest and curiosity because they look at your life and it's a complete dumpster fire, like, like an accident that draws the attention of rubberneckers on the side of the highway. That's not how we want to be interesting to others, right? And sadly, I think the media is all too eager to broadcast stories of dumpster fire Christianity, right? People falling into sin, falling into temptation. There are going to be those stories, sadly enough, 
uh, within the church and, and with professing Christians. But that's not what we're looking for in terms of drawing people's attention. The right way to gain people's attention is to live a Christ-like life by the power of the Holy Spirit that is truly different from anything and everything else people are going to see in this world. When we display boldness and humility, not boldness, courageousness, and arrogance, but humble-heartedness and boldness at the same time, that gets people scratching their heads. When we love people unconditionally, even people that we vehemently disagree with, and yet we're willing to love them and respect their dignity as created by God in his image and worthy of dignity and and value in that sense. When we forgive fully and completely, we don't keep that ghost of memories past haunting our lives because we never can quite forgive that person for what they did to us. But when we can forgive fully uh, and completely, when we can sacrifice even for strangers, when we can honor, again, the value and dignity of every human being, even as we're prepared to disagree with them as to what is true and false and good and bad and right and wrong, and gently point them to the truth and righteousness and goodness of God, when we draw fierce enemies who want to fight us at every turn and want to defame the name of Jesus Christ, and yet we're able to love them and bless them and pray for them as Christ did himself at the cross. Guys, to put it simply, living like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is key. If you run out and try and do this in your own effort, you will never be able to live that kind of a life. But if we together can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to to empower us for a Christ-like life where the life of Christ, the vine, is, is welling up and oozing out of us in the form of spiritual fruit as branches abiding in the vine, as John says in John 15, we can live like Christ and that will elicit the interest of others. So are we seeing any interest from others around us, from a spouse, from a child, from a parent, from an in-law, from a coworker, from a boss, from a friend, from a neighbor, perhaps even from a stranger that is peering in through a window into our life and wondering why we are like we are and what makes us tick? If not, is it because we're living in a predictable fleshly pattern of living? I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying I'm not saved. That's our default, is to fall back on our sinful human natures, to fall back on living in the flesh versus walking by the Spirit. And guys, when you live in the flesh and you indulge every desire and you live a life of selfishness and self-gratification and pride and envy and arrogance and jealousy, and that's not interesting, Right? That's every soap opera everybody's watching throughout the day every day. Right, That's how the world works. And so somebody's going to look at that in our life and go, there's nothing fascinating about you. You're exactly what I expected you to be. And maybe that's why, is that we're not allowing God, we're not inviting God into our lives to help us grow in Christ's likeness so that we too can draw the interest of others in that same way. Every Christian is a work in process. I'm not up here saying I've arrived and I've figured this Christian living thing out, this reliance on the Holy Spirit thing. Every single one of us that has bowed the knee to Christ will be from today on to the day that we die or Jesus comes back to get us. We will be a work in process. That's what sanctification is all about. It's, it's, 
It's by, by trusting in Christ and by relying on the Holy Spirit to more and more set apart areas of our life, our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength for the glory of God and for the good of others. All right? So we are a work in process and we should pray and we can pray just as Paul prayed that God would continue making us more like his son, would continue returning us to the image of God fully by, by conforming us to the image of Christ so that we might draw the attention of more people interested in what makes us tick. So sharing Christ usually begins with interested people, but folks, listen to me. We can elicit the interest of others, but sharing Christ always continues with our intentionality, with what we do with those opportunities, with those interested parties. And this is what we see in the chapter 26 of Acts. The curiosity surrounding Paul's case provides an opportunity to intentionally engage King Agrippa with the gospel. He has access to a king, not to mention a governor and all the tribunes that have been gathered for this to hear Paul's defense. So he has this incredible opportunity, and that's exactly what he sees it as, an opportunity to share the gospel with these these important people in worldly terms. And Paul proves to be intentional both with the information that he explains to them and also with the invitation that he extends to them. Yes, he's choosy on what he says in terms of his information he shares, but he's also very intentional with an invitation to trust in Christ as well, which we'll look at. But first I want to look how Paul is intentional with the information he chooses to share. And we see this in the first 23 verses of chapter 26. This is the bulk of chapter 26, the, the information, and there's strategy here. And by the way, the inspired pen of, of Luke who wrote this, the inspired author who wrote this, this speech of Paul is phenomenally structured. It is a work of, of beauty, literarily speaking, in terms of its structure and how it's laid out. It's in a typical Greco-Roman format. His defense is. It's also got a chiastic structure where it's A, B, C, C, B, A. I mean, it's phenomenal. And I wish I could nerd out on the structure all day long. But the point is not so much the structure as it is the intentionality with which Paul shares certain information and chooses not to share other information. He's very choosy. And so this section is the core of today's passage. And I just want to walk through it with you. And you can read along in your Bibles, okay? In verses 1, 2, 3, One, two, and three, Paul begins his presentation with a generous remark to Agrippa. He's not kissing up to him. He's not saying stuff like we saw with Felix last time in Kevin's sermon, where they're just kind of kissing up to him, saying stuff that they know is not true. Paul has a genuinely generous remark for the king. And he basically acknowledges that King Agrippa knows a lot about Judaism. So he's the perfect person to both hear and understand Paul's defense. So in verses 4 through 8, Paul shares some information about himself. And specifically, and again, he's speaking to a man who is is partly Jewish, who at least identifies in certain ways with Judaism, King Agrippa II, okay? Who's technically a a, a Jewish king, so to speak. But he's also, uh, he, he follows along with Jewish practices and such. When it works out, I guess you'd say. Um, so he basically acknowledges that, that this king knows a lot about Judaism. And so in verses 4 through 8, um, Paul makes it clear that he himself is a Jew who had grown up among his people in Jerusalem. We know that Paul is from Tarsus, but at some point in his childhood, he went to Jerusalem 
to start being trained as a rabbi in the Pharisaical model, okay? So he, first and foremost, right out the gate, is identifying with this Jewish king to say, hey, I'm a Jew as well. And he also adds that he had been a member of the party of the Pharisees, which was the strictest sect among the Jews. They would be called like the more traditional sect, I guess you'd call them, in terms of their interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures and their teaching and the way they lived their lives. And they also happened to believe in a future resurrection for God's people based on the promises of the Hebrew scriptures. That's one of the things that sets Sadducees, who are in charge of the temple and the priesthood, apart from Pharisees, is that Pharisees, like Paul, who was a Pharisee himself at one point, believed in a resurrection, a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in that, okay? So this is how he introduces himself. And he points out that his attack, the attack leveled on him by the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin in particular, stemmed from his belief in, what does it say in this, in this section? He says it stemmed from his belief in this hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. So notice how he portrays himself again as a faithful Jewish man. He says the promise made by God to our fathers, first person plural, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And then he poses this rhetorical question. He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? What is he saying right there with that rhetorical question? He's saying, would bodily resurrection really be so difficult for the creator of the universe who created all this out of nothing? Would it really be too hard for him to raise you bodily from the dead? And then in verses 9 through 12, Paul continues sharing about his life before Christ. And you'll notice he structures it. Life before Christ, Christ, life after Christ. So he he goes on in verses 9 through 12. And he points out that because of his pride, his hard-heartedness, he was strongly opposed to the worship of someone who he considered to be a mere man, Jesus of Nazareth. You see how he uses the human name? Jesus of Nazareth, this man from Nazareth. That's how Saul, before he was Paul, saw Jesus. It's just this man from Nazareth. And what good can come out of Nazareth, as Kevin pointed out last week? Why would they worship this man? This is blasphemy. That's how Saul saw it. And that's one of the reasons he was persecuting the Christians. And so he rages, it says. He's enraged with violent rage against the church throughout Jerusalem, all through Judea. He even went to foreign cities, imprisoning and executing and even torturing Christians to try and force them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. He wants to torture them so that they'll deny Jesus is God, that he is the Christ, the God-man whom they worship. And he was unsuccessful based on how he words that in the Greek. Interestingly, Saul the persecutor who became Paul, his life changed on a dime instantaneously. And so in verses 12 through 18, he tells the story of how he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Then I'm just going to read this portion from the inspired pen of Luke because I don't think I can improve it at all. So listen to what Luke writes. And this is what Paul is saying to King Agrippa. He says, while so engaged, remember he's raging against the church, persecuting, torturing, etc. So while so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, 
At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, that could either be Hebrew or Aramaic, that Jesus would have spoken in his life. Speaking to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Look at how he identifies with the suffering of his people. And he says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a stick you used to get an animal like a horse to, to go, or like a herd animal. You, you, it's, you use it like a whip, basically. You, you, you goad them along. Okay, you've heard that before. So he says, and sometimes they would get mad and they would kick to try and stop you from hitting them with a stick to get them to go forward, okay? So he, this is what he, he's basically, he's like, why are you so stubborn? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then he immediately goes on and tells Saul, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness not only to the things in which you have seen me, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And listen to how he phrases this. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So folks, we just need to stop right there. Like, I don't want to blow past those three verses. So I want, to, I want to just draw out a couple things that we need to note there. Paul is intentionally sharing his personal testimony. Do you get that? He's telling the story of how he became a follower of Christ. Again, before Christ, how he met Christ, and later he's going to talk about what's happened since meeting Christ. And so he's sharing his personal testimony, but he's using that personal testimony to do what? Not just create an interest story around himself. He's using it to encapsulate the good news of Jesus Christ. He's using it to share the gospel with King Agrippa II. And he explains that God's salvation is for both Jews and Gentiles. Part of the reason the Sanhedrin was so mad at him was because he was saying that there was a way for the Gentiles to be saved without coming through Judaism. And that offended them greatly. I mean, a Gentile had sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies in their temple a couple hundred years earlier. They were not big on Gentiles. Maybe if they could proselytize them into Judaism, like the Ethiopian eunuch sort of, but certainly not just, just whole hog coming out of Gentile paganism into the worship of the one true God, salvation from Yahweh, the God of Israel. This was upsetting to them. And yet this is exactly what the message of the Old Testament is. This is what the promise to the fathers was. When he told Abram, who was a Gentile in Mesopotamia, I'm going to make a nation out of you so that what? So that through you, through your seed, I can bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Jew and Gentile, salvation, blessing for Jew and Gentile has been the message from the very beginning, even before there was an Israel. And Paul is going back to that promise to the fathers. All right. And so he says that anybody can be saved by simply opening their eyes. That's, 
that's Hebrew scripture terminology for, for an understanding and awareness of belief from being unblinded, so to speak, from opening their eyes, turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And when you open your eyes and you turn to God, you receive two things. Look at these. Forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among the saints, an inheritance among God's people, the holy ones. And the way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life in this reconciled relationship with God is what? To do a whole bunch of stuff and prove how righteous you are to God, how holy you are, how much you cleaned up your life and all that you did for him. No. You receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among the saints of eternal life and a reconciled relationship with God by simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the message that Paul is sharing. And that's exactly what happens when our eyes are opened and we respond to the good news by turning to God with a repentant heart. It's two sides of the same coin. Our eyes being opened by the work of God in our lives and and turning away from our sin, away from our unbelief, and turning towards God and specifically towards the means of salvation that he's provided for us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And when you repent, when you turn from unbelief to belief in that way, you receive salvation, you receive forgiveness, and you're made holy. You're given the Holy Spirit. You're brought into God's family. In verses 19 through 23, Paul intentionally explains how his life changed since coming to faith. Guys, our stories don't stop with, and then I got my golden ticket to heaven. Sometimes you'd think that was like the whole, our personal testimony as Christians. And then I, everything was perfect. And then um, now I'm just waiting around, tapping my foot until I get to go to heaven. No, these testimonies that people share in scripture, there's always a now what? How has he changed your life since? And the same is true for us. There's always a continuation to this personal testimony, this story of what God's doing in our life. So this is what Paul goes on to next. In fact, It was his obedience, Paul's obedience, to the risen Christ that had led him to evangelize both Jews and Gentiles. And what did he do? He encouraged them to repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. Don't get tripped up here. The deeds come after the salvation. When you are grafted into Christ and the life of Christ is is welling up in you by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will produce fruit at some level. All right? So it's not the fruit, it's not the deeds that get us saved. It's the salvation God works in our life. We are obedient because of God's love for us that he saved us. We're not obedient to earn God's love for us so that he'll save us. Okay? And that's what he's saying. And it's the same thing John the Baptist said. Repent and, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's what he's calling them to do as well, both Jew and Gentile. And of course, this is what landed him in hot water with the Jewish leadership. But Paul knew that everything he was doing and saying was in accordance with what the prophets and Moses. This is a direct quote from Luke in in verses 22 and 23. It was in accordance with what the prophets and Moses said he was that that was going to take place. And this is specifically what it says in the Hebrew scriptures as to whether the Christ, that's the uh, Greek version of the. Hebrew word that gets transliterated as Messiah. Messiah and Christ, same thing, the anointed one of God, okay? 
So whether the Christ was to suffer and whether as first from the resurrection of the dead, he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, guys, I'm not some weird cult leader that just came up with all this new theology, all this new revelation, and I'm running around trying to create a cult for myself. He's saying, I'm anchored into the Hebrew scriptures that date back centuries that have been saying that this was going to happen all along, that God had been revealing all these things all along, and I'm merely telling you that they are now fulfilled, these promises that God had given through Israel and their scriptures. And so each of those three themes is found throughout the Hebrew Bible. And we don't have time today. If you ever want to sit down and look at some of these passages in the Hebrew Scriptures, I'm game. This is what I live for. We'll sit down and have coffee. I'll pay for it. As long as we don't go to Starbucks. We'll go to a cheaper place. I'll buy your coffee. We'll talk about how the Hebrew Scriptures are filled with these three themes. Look at these. A suffering Savior who would die for the sins of God's people. Do you know that's a theme in the Hebrew Scriptures? The Law and the Prophets? And that he would rise from the dead. There's a theme of resurrection. I mean, we see that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. But not merely resurrection for everybody. There's an actual theme in the Hebrew Scriptures that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, that he would die. Go to Isaiah 53. That he would die for the sins of God's people, but be resurrected to new unending life. And that he would proclaim the light of the gospel to all the people, both Jew and Gentile. That's all in there in the Hebrew scriptures, that, that proclamation, that light to the Gentiles. That's why it's quoted in the Christmas narratives at the beginning of the gospels. That's directly quoted from the Old Testament, from Isaiah and others. So to sum it up, Paul was very intentional about the information he chose to share during his defense before King Agrippa. And we, too, have to be intentional about sharing the gospel and our personal testimony with others. And don't tell me you don't have a testimony. If God has saved you and you've gone from death to life through faith in Christ, that is a miracle and you have a testimony. And now as we grow together in Christ as a church family, we get to tell the story of what's happened since. But we all have a testimony. So we have to be intentional about the information. We also have to be intentional with the invitation we extend. So Paul doesn't stop short at just sharing this information about the person work of Christ, lobbing the gospel out there and just, okay, do what you will with that. He goes on to invite King Agrippa to believe in Jesus. And the king actually understands that this is exactly what Paul's doing. It's not some sort of enigmatic thing. He's like, I see what you're doing, Paul, right? So I just want to read this part to you. It says, while Paul was stating these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, so Festus the governor interrupts him and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul doesn't skip a beat. He said, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking out with truthful and rational words. For the king, he's talking to Agrippa here, the king knows about these matters and I also speak to him with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. These things Paul's talking about, the, the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures, none of this has been done in a corner. Like Paul just went off and came up with this Christology, this Christian theology, and then started you know, propounding it to people. It, just, it didn't happen in a corner. It happened out in the, for everyone to see. King Agrippa, he says, do you believe the Hebrew prophets? You see, it's kind of a trap. 
But King Agrippa knows what he's doing. He says, I know that you believe the prophets. I know that you believe Isaiah and, and Malachi and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Zechariah. Agrippa replied to Paul, listen to this. In a short time, you're going to persuade me to make a Christian of myself. Do you think he knew what Paul was getting at? Yeah. And Paul said, listen to this. Again, he doesn't skip a beat. He says, I would wish to God that even in a short or long time, not only you, King Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day would become such as I myself am, except for these chains. He makes his intentions crystal clear by inviting them to trust in Jesus Christ. And in the final verses of chapter 26, we see that King Agrippa is absolutely convinced of Paul's innocence, but even so, he's not convinced of Paul's message of salvation in Christ. He knows Paul's innocent, but he also is not convinced yet about Jesus. But Paul wasn't responsible for the king's response. Did you, say, I would, did you hear him say, I would wish to God? He knows he's not responsible for how Agrippa responds to the gospel. He was only responsible to intentionally bring the message of the hope of salvation to King Agrippa and then to simply trust God with the results. And guys, there's nothing more or less we can do as Christians than to just deliver the message and trust God with how he's going to work it out in people's hearts and minds. You cannot convince someone to believe in Jesus. You can put coercion and pressure on them and social pressure and all this other stuff, threats maybe, but you can't change their heart for Christ. Nor would you want to do all that coercive stuff, okay? You have to simply share the message and trust that God's at work. And uh, I love what Dr. Daryl Box says in his commentary on, on Acts 26. I think he sums this up nicely. He says, Paul the defendant teaches us that evangelism is not about results. Can you just listen to that? That evangelism is not about results, but about faithfully delivering the message. It's like being a paper boy. The paper arrives at the front door because the witness brings it. But to enjoy the benefit of the paper, the person at home must open the door, read the news, and understand it. Paul shows us that the message can be naturally brought, not in some artificial, robotic way. Well, let me tell you the story of Jesus and what he did in my life that it can be shared in a natural way in a variety of settings and circumstances. He also demonstrates that the personal nature of that story is often the most compelling. Guys, the way Christ came and got you and what he's done and is doing in you, that personal touch is one of the most compelling things we have to offer. Paul makes clear, he writes, that the results are God's business. We are merely the means of delivery. So folks, we need to practice sharing the gospel. We do. With each other. We need to just practice like, hey, can you act like my coworker and I want to share the gospel? That's the only way we're going to feel more comfortable doing it. So we need to practice sharing the gospel, but also doing so in the context of our personal testimonies of how we became followers of Christ. When's the last time you just reflected on that? What was life like before? How, what is, how did I come to know Jesus as my Savior? I tell you all the time about trusting Christ, you know, during a prayer over a cheeseburger in a pub when I was 23, right? You all have stories too. It might be when you're four years old at camp or going through a crisis in your 40s. I don't know. But think about it. Reflect on it. 
And how can you share the gospel in the context of that story? And folks, we need to pray that God's Spirit would give us humble-hearted boldness to not only share Christ with intentionality, but also to extend invitations to trust in Him just as we have. Ask people, have you believed in Christ? Do you have any plans to live eternally? What, what's, the, what's your plan on that? Do you, have you found a way I don't know about to, to overcome death and sin and eternal separation from a holy God who created you? No, there is no other way, right? They haven't found it. So ask, would you like to trust in Jesus? Would you like to have forgiveness and eternal life? And maybe they respond, but that's God's business. And like Paul, we can pray for both the confidence to speak boldly and also the humility and the faith to recognize that the convincing is up to God. So we've talked about Paul a lot today, so I'm going to end with the inspired words of of the Apostle Peter. In Peter's first letter, he succinctly reminds us of our Christian calling. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Think about this. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Make him your absolute priority. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. You you have no idea. You can't anticipate who's going to ask and when. So just be ready. Let's be ready to explain the hope that we have in Christ. And folks, my prayer is that each and every one of us will be asked about our Christian hope in the coming days and weeks and months as we move into a season of thanksgiving where people yearn to give thanks to someone, but they, they don't have anyone to give thanks to. And we could say, I can, I can introduce you to him, to the one you can be grateful to, to your creator and your savior and to the worship of Christ and the celebration of the Son of God who was incarnated by the Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit at Christmas. We're moving into a season where a lot of people might have questions about our Christian beliefs and practices, and I pray that God would make us ready to share our hope and the reason we hope in Christ. So let me pray for us, and then I'll hand it over for communion. Please bow your heads with me.